If you have a Bible, would you open it now to the book of First Samuel? Today we're in chapter 16, and in a series of sermons on the life of David, this is the first Sunday we're actually going to mention David. We've already done three sermons prior to this, but we're actually now going to meet and engage with King David. And uh, this, of course, deals with David being anointed uh, as the new king. Saul has been rejected. We saw that clearly last Sunday, but today we're going to see a uh, secret anointing, as it were, of David. Uh, hear now the word of the Lord as we begin in chapter 16, verse 1. We will only go through verse 13 uh, today. Hear now God's word. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. And go, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said do you come peaceably and he said peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice and he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that uh, 
the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And we do pray that as the word goes forth, it will go forth with spiritual power as the Holy Spirit takes it and does his secret work in the depths of our being and at the bottom of our heart. And we look forward to the fruit that you will produce that will redound to the glory of Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. And so today in the text, we meet the shepherd king. Fascinating, fascinating choice and story. Most of us know it. If you've been in church much of your life, you probably run into David and this story. Although I think David and Goliath is probably more popular. But in any group of people that gather together for any reason, there are many points of view. Almost as many points of view as individuals who make up the group on a whole range of things. We have people who are, just to be current, who are vaxxers and anti-vaxxers. Uh, we have people who believe in infant baptism and people who don't. Uh, who believe in believer's baptism exclusively. Uh, we know people who, um, just within the church, people who believe that we should sing psalms only. Other people believe that we should sing hymns only. Other people believe that we should sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, all according to some viewpoint or perhaps podcasts they have listened to by their favorite guru. But... Uh, <laughs> I could go on, but I won't. I don't want to go down that bunny trail. Uh, but there are subjects on which ev almost every single person has a point of view as an adult. Uh, the current political controversy, uh, the latest celebrity scandal, uh, sporting triumph or failure. This is Super Bowl Sunday, by the way. Forty years ago, on Super Bowl Sunday, I sat with my wife at the birth of my middle child, Megan, watching Cincinnati play San Francisco, I think it was. Today, of course, Cincinnati's playing who? The Rams, Los Angeles Rams. That's all I'll say about the Super Bowl. But people have different points of view on who's going to win. I hear about the weaknesses of the Bengals line, and I hear about the strength of somebody like Joe Burrows, but we'll see, won't we? Uh, there are subjects on which many of us may have similar points of view. But even then, it's likely enough that discussion between any two people would reveal at least some areas of difference on almost any and every subject. Certainly there are many issues, some of them very important, on which there are sharp differences in our points of view. You see it that way, I see it the right way. No, I mean, I see it that way. What happens, what do we do? When that happens, what do we do when we reach an impasse with points of view? More and more today, it is believed that the right thing to do is to accept that we all have our own points of view and to accept all points of view as equally valid. That is called postmodernism. There is no architectonic, no meta-narrative, no rubric under which we must all submit. Therefore, every culture, cultural expression, every point of view automatically has validity. 
In other words, you got your truth, I got my truth. You construct your truth because of the community you're a part of. I construct my truth because of the community I'm a part of. And yes, can't we all get along? Aren't all equally valid? And the answer is what? No, you're an idiot. That's what I want to say to people. Of course not. Of course not. That's, that's relativism with a capital R. It is wrong in our culture to suppose or suggest that my point of view is in any way superior to yours or that yours is better than mine. Different perception of things, different understandings of things are just quite literally just points of view. You're looking at things from where you stand with your background, your past experience, your genetic makeup, and so on. And I'm looking at things, perhaps the same things you're looking at, from where I am. We see things differently because we have different points of view. And mature, sophisticated, postmodern, tolerant approaches to differences is to try and understand and appreciate other points of view and accept their validity. Now, let me say postmodernism, in some respects, has been helpful. It has forced us to, you know, to at least give a fair hearing. It has forced us in many ways to see that people's points of view are often shaped by personal issues and not just objective truth. And so postmodernism has said, for example, yes, there is something called the scientific method, which is part of the enlightenment, which is part of modernism. Postmodernism is that which comes after modernism. You didn't know you were going to get this on David, did you? It'll all make sense by the time we close. But uh, postmodernism, that which comes after modernism, questions the scientific method. That's why we have all this argument over vaccines. Because what postmodernism says, yes, scientists may work in the laboratory and do tests and results over and over again, but are scientists objective people who read the data only according to objective truth? And of course the answer to that is no. People have biases. And so as a result of that, people, nobody trusts anybody anymore, do they? There's just a, a signal lack of trust in our culture because of what I would call the postmodern turn. Uh, while postmodernism offers some help, it also provides some harm. Uh, so let me ex uh, suggest uh, a subject on which people certainly have different points of views. That would be the person of Jesus Christ. Those of us who believe in him, our point of view is that Jesus Christ is, in the purposes of God himself, the rightful, sovereign ruler of the whole universe. He is the savior of all mankind. He is the savior all human beings need. He is the judge of every person. Now, there are many other points of view about Jesus Christ. The other point of view, this have this in common, he is none of the things that the first point of view thinks that he is. In our mature, sophisticated, postmodern, tolerant age, those two opinions about Jesus Christ are thought of as merely points of view, just two ways looking at the same thing. Perhaps you have relatives or friends who look at your Christian faith like that. You hold your point of view about Jesus Christ because it's your point of view. That's the way you see it. 
Your background makes you see it that way. Your family, your friends, various influences on you, the kind of person you are. But it's only a point of view. They say things like, well, I'm glad it works for you. How dismissive can you be? That is so rude. And yet, said all the time. So come with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16, back to the days when the nation of Israel had asked for and had been given a king. We have been reminded more than once that King Saul was the king they had chosen for themselves, the king they had chosen for themselves, so that they could be like the nations all around them. But Israel was God's people, and they, they chose a king, an impressive, impressive, efficient, powerful leader, just like the nations. But Israel belonged to God, through whom he had promised to bring blessing to the whole world. King Saul might have been able, as we have seen, to win battles. He might have been able to rally the nation. He might have uh, been good for political strength and stability, but he disobeyed God, clearly and therefore was an unmitigated uh, disaster. Though he was a good military strategist, he was a lousy covenant keeper. How can you live as God's people with a king who is disobedient to God? So in 1 Samuel 16, there's a dramatic new development in the course of which we will find the key to the problem of various points of view. First, let's look at Samuel and the Lord, in two points of view, I have a new beginning and hope in the outline. In 1 Samuel 16:1, Samuel has returned home uh, to his home in Ramah after the final showdown with the disobedient Saul at Gilgal. And Saul had returned to his home at Gibeah. Some unspecified period of time has already passed. The Lord once again addresses Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being the king? It's like God comes to Samuel and says, get over it. Move on. Grief can make us lazy. Grief can drive us to a, a cycle of despair. And, you know, grief finds, uh, ultimately runs its course, not that you ever completely uh, not think about what you're grieving over, but he's saying now's the time for hope. Now's the time for a new beginning. The tragedy of Saul's failure distressed the prophet Samuel. We might say that Samuel had a point of view regarding what had happened. We saw something of that in chapter 13 when faced with Saul's failure at Gilgal. Samuel cried, you have done foolishly. We saw it even more clearly in chapter 15 when the Lord told Samuel of Saul's more dramatic failure with the Amalekites. Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Chapter 15 concludes by saying Samuel grieved over Saul. The great prophet Samuel, and make no mistake, he was a great prophet was not unaffected by the calamity uh, over which he presided. We may reasonably assume that he had developed an affection for Saul. Saul would suffer from his failure, and Samuel wept. More than that, Samuel cared deeply for God's people. Remember how he had said to them, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you? Israel would suffer as a result of Saul's failure, and Samuel wept and grieved. 
More even than that, Samuel knew that Saul's failure was a failure of faithfulness to the Lord who had done such great things for his people, so Samuel wept. So, we see if something like Samuel's agony would be experienced uh, both by Jesus and the Apostle Paul. You remember Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would gather, have gathered you like a mother hen gathers her chicks. Or the Apostle Paul, I should have some great sorrow and ex- unceasing anguish in my heart. All of these men of God grieve because of the consequences of sin, particularly on the people of God. Pastors, preachers, and Christian leaders take note. One who loves God and loves his word will care deeply about sin and its terrible consequences in people's lives, especially the life of the flock. Like Samuel, you will find that you yourself will weep. I can tell you that as a pastor, I have had sleepless nights. And some of those sleepless nights were just me, but some of it was some of you and grieving over some of you. So it's a fact of life. However, on this day in Ramah, Samuel was rebuked by the Lord for his grief. He says, how long are you going to do this? How long are you going to grieve over Saul? The tragedy of Saul's failure was real, but it was not everything. Samuel was not to be so overwhelmed by this calamity that he was paralyzed, that he failed to see God's hand in it and God's purpose even beyond the disaster. How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? The word rejection could be the motto for Saul's kingship. You might recall in chapter 8 when the people first asked for the king, the Lord said to Samuel, they have not rejected you, but rather they have rejected me from being king over them. And Saul's kingship had in its origin in rejection, the people's rejection of the Lord as king. So this was underlined when Samuel gathered people to Mizpah to receive their king. Samuel said to them, Today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all calamities and your distresses. You have said to him, Set a king over us. And so we see the people are in horrible shape because they've not just rejected Samuel, but they've rejected God. And now the time has come for Samuel to recognize the rightness of God's judgment, of his point of view. It was time to turn from grief to hope and God's future. The Lord's command is clear. Samuel was pointed to that future by the Lord's command, fill your horn with oil, go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provided for myself a king among his sons. Now understand something. Saul is still king. He's still on the throne. And God is telling Samuel, get your horn, fill it up with oil, get your donkey or whatever transportation you got, make your way to Bethlehem. The new king is among the sons of Jesse, and I want you to go anoint him. Now, I want you to understand something. Saul was not that far away from where Samuel was, uh, location-wise. They were pretty close together. He had to actually pass by Saul's territory. And so Samuel was a little reluctant here. 
Bethlehem was a town about 11 miles south of Ramah. There's no reason to suppose that Samuel even knew who Jesse was and his family, although they would have certainly known who Samuel was because he was that prophet. And wherever Samuel went and wherever Samuel showed up, there was usually trouble. And Bethlehem was the place among the sons of Jesse, the next stage in Israel's history was about to begin. The precise words of God to Samuel, I have seen among Jesse's sons for myself a king, are important. The word seeing, ra'ah in Hebrew, is used like nine times in these 13 verses. And it's not by accident. And so we see this emphasis upon seeing, we will learn that God sees in a very particular way. He has his own point of view. More about that shortly. What should catch our attention is that God spoke of providing for myself a king. What do you mean by that? Well, certainly he was indicating that the king from among Jesse's sons was going to be different than Saul. The record of Saul's appointment repeatedly emphasizes that he was, not, he was the king chosen by the people for themselves, appoint for us a king. He was your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. Now the Lord tells Samuel, make a king for them. Saul was described as the king you have chosen for whom you've asked your king. The people, when they realized what they had done, acknowledged that they asked for a king. While it is true that God retains sovereignty over the development so that Saul was chosen by the Lord, this does not lessen the fundamentally, uh, does not lessen the emphasis that Saul was appointed because of the people's demands. Now the time has come for the Lord to choose his king for the people, for myself. In chapter 13, Samuel announced the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart to be prince over his people. And now we are at the moment, the brink of the king God has chosen to be anointed. Samuel was a little reluctant here to get involved with his king business again. Reasonably, he figured Saul would be none too happy if he went and appointed another king while he's reigning. And Samuel said, how can I go if Saul hears it? To get from Ramah to Bethlehem, Samuel would have to pass through Gibeah, which is where Saul is. Relations between Saul and Samuel were broken down. Saul may have had God's authority over, uh, Samuel may have had God's authority over Saul, but Saul had troops, and he might well use them if Samuel took active steps to betray him. So fears, however, were not to deflect Samuel from obeying the Lord's words. The Lord met Samuel's fear with a reiteration of his command, adding some details. So if you look in verses 2 and 3, And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you, and say, I have come to sacrifice the Lord to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him when I declare him to you. Now we see the two ways of seeing. Samuel did what Saul had failed to do. He obeys God. Samuel did what the Lord commanded him. He came to Bethlehem. But there was a nervousness and anxiety at the prophet's appearance. The conflict between the prophet and the king was no doubt unknown. 
The town leaders would hardly welcome the idea of being drawn into this clash. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to the sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, it would have been reasonable for the elders to ask the purpose of the sacrifice. Why would the prophet come to Bethlehem, which was a small town in the middle of nowhere? Why would he come there for a sacrifice? But they didn't ask. Perhaps they didn't want to know. Samuel never told them. He just said it was a sacrifice. He simply assured them that there were no hostile intentions toward them, and he told the elders to uh, prepare to participate in the ceremony. So the scene is set for a remarkable moment in history, but it also involved two ways of seeing. First, seeing as man sees. When Jesse and his sons arrived, Samuel's eye lit on one of them, the eldest, and his name was Eliab. And Eliab was a tall, good-looking young man, if there ever was one. When they came, Samuel looked on him and literally saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So here's Samuel looking at Saul 2.0. You remember Saul? He was head and shoulders tall. He was an attractive man. He was a powerful man, physical man, specimen. So Samuel goes into the house, and immediately the firstborn, he's thinking, this is it. This is the guy. It only makes sense. This is what we're to do. Samuel saw. Here's the occurrence of the key word in 1 Samuel 16. Samuel saw Eliab in a particular way. From Samuel's point of view, this tall, good-looking young man seemed to be the kind of man God would choose to be king. However, do you remember the last tall, good-looking fellow? Chosen to be king? So it was Saul. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than anybody. But Samuel, from Samuel's point of view, he saw Eliab as the man God was likely to choose. Now look very carefully at verse 7. Here's where we learn something very important about seeing. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God has a point of view. By the way, that's what the Bible is, his point of view. And his point of view is different from the human point of view. If we take the text as translated here, it tells us that God is not limited as humans are in his point of view. He is not deceived by people's outward appearances. He sees clear down to the soul and to the heart. That, of course, is true. At least one reason for our limited point of view, and it's different uh, from other points of view, is that we both have limited points of view. We have limited experience, limited understanding, limited knowledge, and we can make mistakes. So it's hardly surprising that we all see lots of, lots of things differently. 
But God is not limited as we are limited. Therefore, if God has a point of view, that point of view will not be simply be one more point of view among many others. His unlimited point of view will have absolute validity because of who he is. But verse 7 is almost certainly saying even more than this. Translated more literally, the last sentence of verse 7 goes like this. Listen carefully. For the Lord sees not as man sees. For man sees according to the eyes. But the Lord sees according to the heart. That is, when God sees... He does not just see things with eyes as we do, taking in only impressions. God sees according to his heart. Not our heart. God sees according to his heart. That is, God's point of view is determined by his own will and his own purpose. He sees according to his own intentions of his heart. The fact of the matter is that Eliab, for all of his good looks, was not the one God intended to make king. So God did not see Eliab in the same way Samuel did, just with eyes saw him. The understanding of verse 7 is important. In fact, it is, in my opinion, one of the keys to understanding the entire uh, books attributed to Samuel, both Samuel 1 and Samuel, 2 Samuel 2. It helps us understand at the end of 1 Samuel 16, which literally says, I have seen for myself a king among Jesse's sons. God had seen a king for himself because God sees with his heart. God sees with his heart. In verse 1, God was therefore saying precisely what Samuel had said in chapter 14, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Now, I entitled this series, David, A Man After God's Own Heart. Uh, I'd like a do-over on that, and here's why. Listen carefully. A man after God's own heart has been taken in popular Christian jargon to mean a particularly godly man, a man with a heart like God's, but I don't believe that that's what these words mean when I look at the life of David. They don't mean that. A man after God's own heart means a man of God's own choosing because that's what the word ra'ah means. A man after God's own choosing. A man God set his heart on. A man after God's heart is, if I can put it like this, talking about the place the man has in God's heart rather than the place God has in man's heart. We're talking about sovereignty here. We're talking about the doctrine of God here. These vital statements are about God's gracious and sovereign purposes rather than some quality in a man. When you look at David, when you look at him, it's just like David and Saul to me in so many ways remind me of Esau and Jacob. Jacob was a con man. Jacob was a real stinker. You look at his whole life, and God just blesses this guy over and over and over again. I don't even like Jacob. He's a mama's boy. (laughs) 
He's a pitiful person. Uh, he's very strong, however, but he was always seeking some kind of scam, some kind of con game, no matter where he went and who he's with. And Esau was a manly man. He was a hairy man. He was a hunter. And even toward the end, when he met uh, Jacob again, his heart had softened and he didn't kill him because he stole the blessing. But Jacob spent his whole life conning, scheming, um, stealing, conniving to, to seek the blessing that God just wanted to give him by grace. And now God selects David, not because David is such a godly man that God can use him because his heart is seeking to obey God, but rather David is God's man because God's chosen him. God set his love on him. There was nothing in David and there's nothing in me or nothing in you that would move the heart of God to choose us. He chooses us because he loves us. Just notice that David said about what God had done for him. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. That's the last words of David in 2 Samuel 7, 21. So therefore, according to your own heart here is the same expression after his own heart. Therefore, the one whom God had sought out according to God's own heart. And so we come back to Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, and the Lord, uh, I mean, Samuel's there and Jesse parades out his sons. We get three of the names of the sons the last three aren't even worthy of honorable mention and then he asked uh you know samuel sits there and he says obvious the lord has not chosen any of these as a king for himself this idea has been expressed in various ways here sometimes called the doctrine of election God's good purpose arises out of his perfect and sovereign will. And the Bible teaches that he chose Israel to be his people, David to be his king, Jerusalem to be his city. His purposes in all this will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, his chosen one. Christian believers know they themselves have been chosen in Christ. The Bible clearly says so. The Bible, biblical doctrine of election provides the firm foundation for Christian assurance and humility. God's good and gracious purpose, purposes depend ultimately and only on his will. They are therefore certain, but leave no room for human pride. The doctrine of election has deep roots in the Old Testament. Just as God did not choose Israel or Jerusalem because of their righteousness or uprightness of their heart, he did not choose the new king because of his personal qualities. On the contrary, whatever outstanding qualities we may see in this new king, David, are the consequence of, not the reasons for, God's choice of him. The security of David's throne will rest on the solid foundation of God's promises, not on David's performance. That is what we will make, that is what will make his reign so radically different from Saul's. In other words, whatever we see in David that is commendable and laudable is not David's own doing. They are the fruit of God's choosing of him to be king. Now, 
We come back to 1 Samuel 16, the parading of Jesse's seven sons. None of them are chosen. And then, of course, Samuel says, are all your sons here? And there's the unlikely one. I can imagine Jesse about to say, yeah, they're all here. But he remembered the runt of the litter, the one that they didn't normally include in adult company. There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. I didn't think you'd want to see him, Samuel. He's still a child. And Samuel said to Jesse, send for him, get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. And so they waited. It took some time. But when he arrived, we are given a colorful description of David's appearance. He was ruddy, with beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. Now, ruddy means red. And we don't know if David was redheaded or just had a red tone to his skin. Not sure, it's hard to know. But he had gorgeous eyes, and he was a handsome man. But he wasn't big, he wasn't tall, he wasn't overly large because Saul's armor wouldn't fit him, and uh, Goliath wasn't terrified by him. So he's just kind of an average guy. In this chapter that says so much about seeing the boy's red complexion or hair, his beautiful eyes and overall good looks are probably a little ironic. We're not told of his height or stature as we were with Eliab and earlier Saul. The description is of a, an attractive looking boy, but hardly a potential king. And so the Lord commands, as is so often the case, the unlikely one from the human point of view turns out to be the one God had chosen. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. This lad was anointed for one reason only. The Lord chose him and willed it. So Samuel obeyed. He anointed him. That is, he messiahed him. That's what messiah is. Messiah is anointing. With oil, symbolically appointing him as God's chosen king. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. This was the one upon whom God had set his heart to be a king for him. There's a sense in which David would be better than Saul. As Samuel anointed the boy, David was empowered by God for the task ahead. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Remember in Psalm 51, when David prays, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Apparently in the Old Testament era, the Spirit did not indwell people. He rushed upon people for special tasks. Now, as believers in Christ, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That means that if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit has penetrated your being and dwells within you. It doesn't make you God. It just makes you a human being inhabited by the Holy Spirit, and he's the one who empowers. But for David here, because of God's choice, the Spirit rushes upon him, and he does some rather remarkable things, as we will see. He's anointed. And verse 13 is the first time we hear the name David in the Bible. But we're going to hear a whole lot more about him as we continue. We will consider the importance of the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon him in our next chapter. The episode concludes with Samuel rising up and going to Ramah. 
We are aware that something very important happened in the little town of Bethlehem on that day. It was not yet publicly known. Even the brothers of David who witnessed the anointing would have little idea of the significance of what they had seen if they saw only with their eyes. They certainly could not have realized what happened on that day in Bethlehem would eventually lead to another day for which the little town of Bethlehem gained its lasting fame. We sing about it at Christmas time. It was anticipated more than 200 years after the events of 1 Samuel 16 when the prophet Micah said, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old, from ancient of days. The only way that anyone can see the true significance of what happened in Bethlehem on the days of Samuel, Saul and David, or in the days of Herod the king and Caesar Augustus, is to see things from God's unique point of view. Hear the Bible and its astonishing answer to the problem of points of view with which we began this sermon. Here, uh, if I may, I'll put it like this. The Bible is the answer to postmodernism and modernism as well. It is a simple but powerful fact that God has a point of view. This is the reasons that Christians cannot accept in whole postmodernism. But we got it everywhere, folks. You're wondering where all this woke stuff, you're wondering where all this gender stuff, you're wondering where all this sexual confusion comes from. It's the fruit of postmodernism, which actually started in France in 1940s. Okay? As, as the philosophers often say, it takes three generations for philosophy to take root in a culture. And it took a long time. But now we're seeing the full bud of it. But God has a point of view. Human knowledge is not the only knowledge there is. We can welcome postmodernism's recognition of the provisional nature of human knowledge. But human knowledge is not the only knowledge. It's not that we want to impose our point of view on others, but we cannot accept that every point of view is equally valid. You can't tell me if I believe Jesus is the God-man, as Dan read from the Nicene Creed, that he is the union of the second person of the Trinity with human nature. He is the God-man who came to save us for our sins, and, well, he's a nice guy, and he had some pretty good ideas on virtue. Those are radically different. And I'm sorry, that's wrong. <laughs> it errs, or errs, whichever you want. We human beings can only see properly as we learn God's point of view. That is precisely, precisely what God's Word teaches us. It teaches us uh, that, uh, to see David as God sees him. So I'm going to have to uh, change the title of my series. Because I had it, David, a man after God's own heart, when it should be God chooses David according to God's own heart because that's what the hebrew says and it's powerful the other it makes entertaining because it makes me look at david as some sort of model for my life no david's just like you 
He's just like me. He's just like everybody else. What makes him great is God's choice of him. What makes him do great things is God's work in him. But David's just like the rest of us, a sinner in great need of grace. The shepherds who were keeping watch over their flocks by night, a thousand years after Samuel anointed David, learned to see properly. The heavenly host said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothing lying in a manger. And then the shepherds said, Let's go to Bethlehem and see the things that happened, which the Lord had made known to us. And they went with haste, found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made it known, saying they had been told uh, concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen, as they had been told them. How about you? Can you see properly? What's your point of view? I, uh, I, I, I often am less than fascinated by people's opinions sometimes. Uh, and particularly when I'm talking with people who aren't believers, who are profoundly dogmatic about what they think and strongly opinionated. And I often think in my mind, and sometimes I say with my mouth, depending on how big the person is, uh, what you have is a vagrant opinion. It has no visible means of support. And I see that a lot. But God sees, God sees, God sees. Over and over in this passage, God sees. And when God sees, that means God chooses. God works. And at the end of our lives, what will be glorious is what God has produced in us. God has chosen us. God has gifted us. God has called us. God has empowered us. God has ordained us unto good works, Ephesians says. And in the end, it will all redound to his glory. Why? Because he did it. But he chose people like us, the weak, the lame, the least, the last according to some points of view, for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the book of 1 Samuel, for this chapter, because it helps clarify some really big issues regarding who you use, who you choose, and you choose according to your own heart. We thank you for blessing us today and speaking to us through your word. Now we pray as we continue to worship, we would be faithful to give, recognizing that everything we have is by virtue of your gift and that it will be used in ways that please you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.